Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Karen Little. With her husband, Karen founded the nonprofit TNR group Alley Cat Advocates in 1999. Based in Louisville, Kentucky, the group has altered just a shy of 50,000 community cats and has worked to transform the culture of care provided community cats in the region. She was instrumental in a 2012 ordinance change that moved the city's municipal shelter to immediately implement an extremely successful return-to-field program, moving the city's live release rate for cats to over 95% in 2017 through 2019. Alley Cat Advocates currently holds the municipal contract for all community cat-related issues. Karen, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. So Alley Cat Advocates started back in 1999. And for those of you who might be new to the show, Karen has been a previous guest on the show. She was on the show a couple of years ago, and you could always go to communitycatspodcast.com, go into the search bar and just put Karen or Karen Little, and her past show will come up if you want to listen to that. But Alley Cat Advocates has been around since 1999. So I guess I'm fair to say that you're a veteran in this business. And, you know, tell us a little bit about all the things you've learned in, wow, 21 years? 21 years, absolutely. (laughs) There's been a lot of change both in the field, but also locally for us in that amount of time. My husband and I, as you stated, started the group in 1999. And that was because Actually, the genesis of our work was my working at the University of Louisville and having the luxury of walking to work. And I kept finding cats in that 10-minute walk, literally a cat magnet. And I learned very, very quickly that there were not enough friends, relatives, enemies, co-workers to find homes for all those cats, the traditional inside homes. So my husband and I traveled around the country to try to figure out what the solution might be. And that's when we stumbled upon Trap New to Return. Our whole goal was just literally to solve the problem that I was having as we started collecting cats ourselves and became crazy cat people up at five total cats. And we didn't want more than that. And we saw that that's where this was going. So when we started the Trap Neuter Return program in Louisville, Kentucky in 1999, again, our vision was not let's change the whole world as far as Louisville, Kentucky is concerned, but instead to move our issues forward. And we had like-minded people to help us with that mission. So we started doing surgeries, the Trap Neuter Return process in the year 2000. And as you've stated, we've moved from doing very few surgeries to over these 21 years, reaching just about 50,000 cats in our community. That's incredible. And you didn't start out with creating a clinic or anything, doing that type of volume without access, at least in the early days, I would assume, to a high volume spay neuter clinic is really challenging. How has that 50,000 cats or almost 50,000 cats been sort of distributed over the last 20 years? Did it start out slow and then eventually move in as more resources came into the neighborhood? Like, do you have a high volume spay neuter clinic in the area that you use? 
So initially, there was no high-volume option at all. In fact, we considered opening a high-volume spay-neuter clinic, but didn't feel that our careers would support that, and we wanted to continue in our professions, my husband and myself. So we went the TNR route, and what we knew that we needed to do volume in order to make the difference in a community the size of ours, which is 750,000 individuals in the city itself and 1.2 million in the metropolitan area. So we knew we needed to do higher volume than private vet clinics would allow us to do. So we did start our own MASH style spay-neuter clinic in 2000, in the year 2000, where we were setting up on a weekend, transforming a janitorial warehouse into a spay-neuter clinic. We have 10 to 15 vets that would come in on a Sunday and they would help us with, we grew to to be doing 150 cats one weekend a month. And we did 24,000 cats in that MASH style clinic. Later in our history, 2007, a high volume spay neuter clinic did open in town and we started doing both our big fix style MASH clinics in 2010. We were still doing those, but we also supplemented our work by using that high volume spay neuter clinic and eventually 2016 was our last year of the mash style clinic and then we were doing just the high volume spay neuter clinic there where we were outsourcing our surgeries to that clinic so i've run a mash style clinics too and uh, the organization that i you know, ran for many years still has their monthly mash style clinics in addition to our mobile spay-neuter clinic that we have, what was the decision-making process around deciding to take a step back from those MASH clinics? They're very labor-intensive, and we were able to do the same number, the same volume of CATS by just focusing our efforts in the outsourced work that we were doing at that spay-neuter clinic, the high-volume spay-neuter clinic. So we were able to, again, accomplish the same number of cats that we were spaying and neutering each month without the extra labor of the mash-style clinic. The downside was really that those mash-style clinics are such a draw for volunteers and for the media just to see 100, 125 cats laid out on tables, getting the great care that they were getting. For a visual and a PR perspective, it was fantastic, but it was an incredible time suck. You know, for the last 20 years, what have been the things that have really moved the needle for you? And what were the things that I would call obstacles or challenges that really slowed the growth for the organization? So I think the one of the greatest things that we accidentally did was to make sure that we had citizens involved with the trap neuter return process. So we don't have trappers that go out and trap cats for the most part. For people who are elderly, disabled, or transportation challenged, yes, we have trappers that will help those individuals. But if it's an able-bodied person, we engage them as a partner so that they do the trapping. We train them how to do the trapping. We loan them the traps, and we support them through the process. But by doing that kind of a distribution of the trapping process, we were able to do the higher volume surgeries. And in addition, those are people that were then Obviously, they were invested in their cats initially to have reached out to us, but they also became even more invested when they're able to have seen that they participated in that way in the whole process. The cats will sell themselves as being better off once they come back into that colony. 
But the fact that those individuals participated in that improvement in their quality of life really helped propel our success, both from a volume standpoint, but also the word in our name, Alleca Advocates, these are our advocates. We don't have to do PR. We don't have to reach out into the community looking for cats. These people call us. They have success. They tell their neighbors and friends about this cool program, and we're off and running. And what would it be a challenge that you've had to go through over the last 20 years? I think the challenge is not unlike any other organization that starts literally in my kitchen with calls coming in at maybe three or four a week to the situation where we find ourselves now, where we get over 8,000 calls a year for assistance, not just from people who are feeding cats, but also from people who don't want the cats in their yard. So to move gracefully from being able to manage the program with my husband and myself returning those calls to where we need to return many, 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 many more calls, be responsive to our community, and also, of course, increase the number of surgeries that we do each and every week. At this point, we're scheduling 175 cats every week for surgery, and you really just can't do that out of a kitchen very well at all. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your relationship with the city of Louisville. I believe you have a closer relationship with the municipality. You have a municipal contract, which is very rarely heard of. So maybe tell us a little bit what that is all about and what your relationship is you know, with the city officials. Sure, absolutely. So we were really fortunate in 2010 to get a grant from PetSmart Charities where we were able to focus a target our surgeries in one zip code in our community. And what we learned very, very quickly is in that one zip code that, of course, we had chosen strategically because there was a lot of intake into the shelter of stray cats from that zip code that even At the very beginnings of our two-year grant cycle, we did 800 cats, spayed and neutered 800 cats. And even in that short amount of time, which was about eight months, there was a 51% decrease in cats from that zip code coming into the shelter. So that really perked the interest, piqued the interest of those municipal officials who were watching us closely. At that point, the trap neuter return was not prohibited, but it wasn't blessed either by the city ordinances. So we were able to affect that really positive change. The complaint calls reduced dramatically, and of course that intake reduced. So in 2012, we were able to work with the municipal shelter, their leadership team, and also the county attorney to come up with an ordinance that mandated trap neuter return in our community. And that passed unanimously from our city council, which is pretty rare. But again, we had a track record of success and a demonstration of lower intake that was very pleasing to everybody. So we passed that ordinance, the city did in April of 2012. And by June 1st of 2012, our shelter had implemented a return to field program. Say goodbye to scooping. Say hello to a better litter box. Introducing Kitty Sift, the eco-friendly, waterproof litter box made of recycled cardboard. Just lift, sift, and reuse. See it on Amazon or go to kittysift.com and use coupon code PODCAST for 15% off. Sign up today for a kitten-focused event presented by the National Kitten Coalition and the Community Cats Podcast. It's the online kitten conference. This three-day virtual gathering will feature presentations by experts on raising and saving kittens, setting up and managing kitten-centered shelter programs, and more. 
The online kitten conference is going to be on June 12th through the 14th. And all presentations will be recorded, so if you can't attend them all, no worries. You'll be able to watch the recordings afterwards. Since this is a virtual event, you'll have the opportunity to gain valuable insights and have your questions answered by some of the most knowledgeable leaders in the animal welfare community without the expense and hassle of traveling. For $75, you'll get full access to the whole program of the Online Kitten Conference in 2020 on June 12th through the 14th. CommunityCatsPodcast.com and sign up today. We can't wait to see you there. So you talk about this TNR ordinance and of this whole concept about when to be proactive. You have advocates in your name. It sounds like what you did was you took an opportunity. You had created a very successful project. Nobody was saying anything good or bad about TNR. So you went in and you did this project. You had great results. And you used that as an opportunity to leverage in to get something in place before something controversial came about. Is that sort of a correct strategy? Absolutely. The literal terms that I used was the sky had not fallen. In fact, positive things were happening because of the work that we had done. And when positive things happen, others want to be on that bandwagon. So the city officials wanted to be on that bandwagon as well. So it was a easy transition for them to make those ordinance changes. And they are in place today, of course. We now have, for the third year in a row, we are starting our third year of having the municipal contract with the animal shelter in that the city pays us to receive and respond to all calls to the city regarding community cats. The only ones that are fielded by our partners at municipal shelter are those that are for sick and injured stray cats. Their officers still respond to those calls, but the other calls we respond to. There may be enforcement issues involved in which we would engage their officers, but for the most part, responding to calls from citizens to the city regarding community cats come directly to us. So how did you know to do that? I mean, I don't think many people would think, oh, okay, great. Now let's get an ordinance. I mean, did that just magically come to you or did somebody else advise you that you should do that? Or were there other people advocating for this? It was just clear that if we were going to institutionalize the care that we were providing community cats, that our shelter needed to stop killing those community cats, those that were ear tipped and vaccinated and really weren't causing the problems that traditionally stray cats have been known to cause. So it was just a clear path to protecting both the work that we'd already done, but the work that we wanted to continue to do in the future. So we were just well positioned through that good work and the community of support to pass that ordinance and move in that direction. And you mentioned the the municipal shelter. So what happened there? As I said, the last three years, we've had this municipal contract. And about a year and a half, two years ago, I was working with the leader, the director of the Metro Animal Services is the organization's name. And he said, you know, we're moving to this new campus. We're going to close down this shelter that was built in the 1960s. We're going to build a $12 million shelter on this city property. And there's this freestanding building behind it. I was wondering if your organization would like to use that building for your services. And I looked at the building and I thought, wow, that's going to be a lot of work. 
But to institutionalize trap, neuter, return and the care that we're providing these community cats, how could we be better positioned than to be literally in their face on the same property as they are? So in an October of last year, they opened their brand new shelter, $12 million facility. And last summer, which would have been August of 2019, we started building out what we needed inside this freestanding building. We gutted the building, we put in a spay-neuter clinic, we put in a room to house cats that need rehab, maybe a wound that needs closure or they may need dental work. We have a room to house those cats. We also have a room in this facility to house cats that can't humanely go back outside. We've never wanted to euthanize cats that maybe are in their final stages of renal disease, or maybe they're a diabetic that found themselves to be outside and of course are not doing very well. We've never wanted to euthanize those cats. So we needed a facility to house them and market them for those people who might be interested in special needs or hospice cats. So we have in this new building, also a room for them. And attached to that is a 24 foot by 24 foot roofed catio, patio for cats. And they can go through their cat door and lounge and live comfortably for the rest of their lives. Our administrative offices are also housed in that building. So we're literally a stone's throw away from our municipal shelter. We're right behind their main adoption facility. So again, if citizens are interested in adopting special needs cats or hospice types cats, they can walk literally feet and be in our facility and sit out in the catio with those cats and introduce themselves. So this has been a partnership that as far as I'm aware is the only one in the country that has really really moved the culture of care in our community with regard to community cats. They're just not going to be left behind. We're here and we're here to stay. Yeah, this is incredible. It's really dynamic in the process. To get to where you are right now, there were many steps along the way to get there. And if those things hadn't happened, you might not be where you are today. So do you have any advice for others who want to try and possibly create something like this in their community? Well, I think the thing that most concerns me about talking about our great success is that it's rather intimidating. It's even intimidating to us when we think about from where we came to where we are now. And had we had this vision in mind or thought this was where we were going, we probably would have said, my husband and myself, no, that's way too much work. We're not going to invest. We're not going to do that. That's just too much to fathom. So I think that the caution that I share with people who are thinking about changing their culture for community cats in their community is that you just start. You do three cats a week, four cats a week, and then maybe you'll be trap neuter and returning 10 cats a week. And you develop an infrastructure so that you can support that work Fundraising is critical. You absolutely cannot do this work without some skill set, whether it's yours or somebody else's that you reach out to for assistance in that area. Just start, move forward one step at a time, and maybe it won't blossom into a community cap complex on your municipal shelter's campus, but maybe it will blossom into something that's exactly appropriate for your community. But if you don't start and you don't move forward, there's no chance of that happening. So you did mention a little bit about fundraising and their fundraising challenges. Is raising money for a capital campaign different than raising money for just general operations? 
Yes, absolutely. It's very, very different. There are individuals in the community who will support you in a helpful but smaller way. But when they see a vision that's coming to fruition, such as in a capital campaign, my sense, having only done this one capital campaign, is that they really step up and they can share that vision. It's tangible and it it happens in a way that they can visualize. It's not as abstract as even the abstractness of scheduling 175 cats a week. That's pretty abstract. And you have to use a lot of brain power to figure out why that would be a good thing. But when someone sees a building with a catio, with a recovery center, and understands that all those procedures, whether they be dentals or amputations, are done on site without terrifying the cats to move them to a private clinic, then they can really step up. And that campaign experience was much different than the annual fund experience. Do you prefer one over the other? Oh, I don't like either of them, (laughs) but that's just being honest. It's very stressful to need to raise money. It is a different beast, but it's so critical. When we started, my husband and I said, we don't want to euthanize that cat just because it needs a leg amputated and it's going to cost $400. And if the only barrier is money, then we have to learn how to raise the money to save that cat's life. So while it might not be pleasant, and in some cases, especially so many of us are cat-centric and not all that people-centric, we have to get outside of our comfort zone to help the cats. And so raising money is a key component of that success. Karen, you've gotten to be known as a expert in the area of return to field, and you participated in creating a manual on that with I believe, Brian Cordes of Neighborhood Cats, as well as HSUS. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. This was a creation um, between Brian and Danielle at HSUS and myself. We were speaking regionally. I think we actually we were in the Midwest doing some presentations in Oklahoma and Kansas. And we said, you know, we're to a point in this return to field movement that people would very much benefit. Obviously, shelters staff would very much benefit from having a manual that walks through the steps of admission of such cats, determination of whether or not they should be community cats or go up for traditional adoptions. And then what kind of surgery process do they need? And when the cats are returned back to the field, what follow-up is necessary? What kind of community support and engagement is a part of this whole community cat program notion? So we got together and wrote this return to field manual. And we felt from Alley Cat Advocates perspective, since we started a program in partnership with our municipal shelter in 2012, and it had been wildly successful, as you said earlier, our live release rate for the last three years has been 95% for cats. And actually, it's 94% for dogs in our community, in large part because of the resources that have shifted from cat care, for which there's very few cats in our shelter now, to helping the dogs. That kind of success because of a return to field program was something that I could certainly get behind and thought that maybe we could put a manual together that would help others as well. So Karen, if folks are interested in finding out more about Alley Cat Advocates, how would they do that? We have a website. It's alleycatadvocates.org, which is a wealth of information. And then we also have on that website our email address, which is contact us at alleycatadvocates.org, and then our phone number is 
634-8777. We do field conversations and calls from around the country. I spend a good deal of time chatting with people who have dilemmas and challenges in their home communities, and I'm thrilled to be able to do that. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I think you've asked the questions that needed to be asked, and I don't think I have anything else except this has been just a wonderful experience. Karen, thank you so much. And I think you have one of the best model programs out there. So if there are folks that want to go and see Louisville, Kentucky, you should go on a road trip or hop on a plane and go check out Karen's new facility and see the work that they're doing in action. I'm a firm believer in modeling, but I also know that every region, every area has their own special needs. But I really think that Karen is truly a great leader in this industry of creating a really great environment for our community cats. And Karen, I want to thank you for mentoring groups, for availing yourself to talk to other groups and just being there and being transparent about everything today. Thank you so much. And thank you for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on again. And for the listeners that are out there, please share this show with others. It will help us be able to spread the word more for helping community cats. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 